Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we are speaking with Dr. Greg Phillips. Dr. Phillips is a microbiologist and professor of veterinary microbiology at Iowa State University. Some of his research interests include genomics, microbiome function, and the develop of genetic tools to study how bacteria cause disease. Today, Dr. Phillips is joining us to discuss his research in CRISPR gene editing, as well as telling us about his faith journey as a Christian working in the vocational world of microbiology. Dr. Phillips, we're glad to have you join us today. Oh, God, thank you. Good, good to be with you. And, and I've always wanted to say that, right? You, that's the response you hear on news programs. And Dr. Fauci always says, good to be with you. So I, I get to say that. There you go. Glad to have you with us. Tell us, as we start out, can you tell us a little bit about your faith journey, uh, about yourself, how you come to know the Lord, and then you, you know, how you went through school, feeling the vocation, vocational calling to be a scientist. Uh, tell us that story. Yeah, sure. Thank you for the, for the question. So I'll, I'll give my answer just with a, a, a quick story of how I came to read your book, um, Salvation and Sovereignty, a, a Molinist Approach. So in my efforts to better understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and, and free will, I think that's an appealing way to reconcile those those terms um you know I, f I found your book on the topic and was excited but always like to do a little background research on on the author you know your beliefs and and your background so in doing so i i found out you're originally from missouri and grew up as a st louis cardinals fan so i grew up on the other side of the river in southern illinois and also a lifelong cardinals fan so with that i knew i could read your book and uh and trust your uh we all know we all know that there may be one team called the angels but we really we all know which team really the lord loves good 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 point that that's right that's right um but but seriously i i did really enjoy uh reading your book and it, it's really been helpful to me me and and your response to my pretty basic questions there was very helpful. So I really, uh, really appreciate that. And I recommend the, uh, the book, but, but as I said, so I grew up in the Southern part of Illinois and I would say I grew up in a, in a churched family. Uh, you know, I attended a, a Baptist church, regularly attended Sunday school and youth group, but it was really through the teaching of dedicated uh, uh, ministry leaders where I heard and, and, and understood the gospel, you know, even in a, at an early uh, age. So for me, it was very natural to, to understand that, that I'm a sinner and I can only be made righteous before a, a holy and perfect God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And he's the one that led the sinless life and, and uh, died as a sacrifice for my sins. And I could do nothing to earn my own salvation except for placing my faith in his life and work, and, and it's through him, his grace, um, that I'm saved. And that was always just a, a very natural, uh, easy thing for me to believe, and I, I know it's not that way for, uh, uh, for everyone. 
so I've always enjoyed science and I majored in biological sciences in, in uh, college, you know, which is of course is a, it covers a little bit of everything in the, in the life sciences. And like many students in science, or I imagine theology as well, there's always a class or two uh, uh, that really piques your interest. And for me, the, the class was um, a couple of courses in, in microbiology, uh, which of course is the study of bacteria and, and viruses. As we like to say, it's a small, small world. Mm. Um, but it was an, appealing for me to study this, this unseen uh, world that that we uh, experience and can have significant influences in our lives, both both positive and and uh, and negative, and really in a sense we're all students of microbiology now, right? So of course this COVID nineteen pandemic is caused mm. by a microscopic virus, and uh, you know, viruses are even simpler and and um, smaller than uh, than bacteria. So I, I think, I uh, I think we've learned more about viruses in the last year than we really wanted to. Exactly right, and and hopefully not from uh, personal experience. Let's keep that prayer as well. But but the idea of studying bacteria and viruses, it's a way of really getting at the the fundamental aspects of life. In other words, genes and and how genes uh, function and how they're regulated and how they end up contributing to what the organism is. And as we know genes and bacteria are very similar in a lot of ways to our genes that you can read that information the same way as you can read our own genes so uh that coupled with just my enjoyment of the university life i uh, enjoyed the classes i took uh, teachers that i had uh, instructors and and so i early on i i set as a goal to uh, to to have a life in in academics as a, as a university professor so to pursue this, I, I attended graduate school at the University of Georgia, where I majored in genetics. So in addition to being a Cardinals fan, I'm also a big Georgia Bulldogs uh, uh, fan as well. Who knows when I get to see them play again. So that time I continued to attend and be active in a, in a local church, but continually became aware of a need to better integrate my life and my career Monday through Saturday, you know, with, with my Christian walk, with my Christian life. And I now understand that integration to be called my Christian Christian worldview, but I needed some help. That that wasn't something that I had learned a lot of in in my uh, experiences in in, uh, in church. So I'll, I'll quickly recount two influences that that really helped me and continue to help me uh, to develop a, a Christian uh, worldview again that strengthened my faith, so that I know that my faith is not based on how I was raised or what church I went to, but, but was, it was based on you know, my faith in, in, uh, in uh, Jesus Christ. So the first event was when I went with a friend to hear a new evangelist whose ministry was just getting started, and he was giving a, uh, a talk at the, at the university. And the evangelist turned out to be Ravi Zacharias, and, and it was, ah. must have been one of the first uh, uh, forays into talking, and it was, wasn't even that big of a of a, of a group, but uh, as those of us who have heard him, uh, he has a unique and very compelling way of talking about uh, questions of, about how belief in Christ provide the best answers for fundamental questions of life, including meaning, purpose, and, and, uh, and, and origin. And, and uh, he would give references and, and I could go and read those books. So that was, a, that was an exciting uh, moment that I look back on. The second major influence came when I when I was looking at a at a bookstore, just kind of perusing the shelves, 
and I found a book called Classical Apologetics. And you, you know this book. It's written by R.C. Sproul and, and John mm -hmm. Gerster and Art Lindsley. And that was my first exposure to, to reasons for, for the faith for, and apologetics. And I can still remember the excitement of reading about it. There are, there are reasoned, logical answers for existence of God, the resurrection, other fundamental beliefs um, that, that have strong basis in, in science and logic and, and, uh, and history. Uh, so from there, I, you know, I continued to um, follow uh, Ligonier uh, Ministries and took advantage of several of their teaching uh, resources. And uh, for several years, I, I would receive tape, cassette tapes of, of R.C. Sproul's lecture, and he had series on a You're really, you're really dating yourself whenever you say that you, you listen to cassette tapes. I was going to say. not even listening to CT. Exactly. I was going to say, you have to explain that maybe for some of your younger reviewers, what that technology uh, actually is. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, but, but so, you know, I'm not fully convinced of all of the explanations for God's sovereignty and our free will in, in Reformed theology. But, but nonetheless, uh, Ligonier continues to be a, a valuable resource for my own, for my own growth. Well, you've, you've um, said some names there that we all appreciate. I, I, you are one of many who would say that uh, we're profoundly impacted by Ravi Zacharias and his ministries. Of course, right. he's gone home to be with the Lord. Right. Uh, we, we miss him. Uh, and same thing with R.C. Sproul and John Gerstner uh, yeah. have also gone home to be with the Lord. But they both ministries, uh, Robbie Zacharias and Ligonier Ministries, have done an excellent job in showing what it means to be a thinking Christian, a Christian who exercises all of his faculties. Uh, you know, one of the things I challenge the students is to repeat uh, the great commandment. They'd say, well, it's to, to love God with all your, your heart, soul, and mind. And I'll say, okay, what does it mean to love God with all your mind? And I think that uh, you and I both, uh, coming from the Midwest, you and I both being raised in a Baptist environment, we're, we're deeply grateful for the way in which Jesus was presented boldly and clearly to us, our lost condition, uh, how we needed to be saved, and how salvation by grace through faith was proclaimed and we were invited to be saved. All of those things, we will be eternally grateful. Absolutely. Having, having said that, I can't say that I ever was taught anything that resembled apologetics <laughs> uh, during my, I mean, I, like you, I grew up in Baptist churches, heard, heard many a great, wonderful gospel preacher, right. but I had no grounding in terms of how, how, what does it mean to have a life of the mind that is a, a life of faith? And I didn't have that until I, Josh McDowell's book, yeah. uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Right. Uh, that was the first book that I had ever read uh, on apologetics, and it was it was revolutionary, right? In that, right. Because uh, you know there were times I would almost have an existential crisis. You know, okay, it, I know I need this to be true. Is it actually true? And there's where uh, men like Ravi Zacharias and R.C. Sproul have done a wonderful work. As a Christian, you are involved in microbiology, and uh, in our communications uh, and things we've been talking about. One of the things that you're involved in is gene editing. 
for our hearers, can you explain to us what is, uh, first I'm going to ask you what gene editing is in general, and then I'm going to ask you in particular, what is CRISPR technology? So take a stab at both of those. Sure, I'd be, uh, be glad to. So, so the idea of gene editing is just a, it's a tool used in, in the overall uh, realm of biotechnology, where we're, we're able to manipulate life uh, in, in a way that, that we believe is, is beneficial. And we can see a lot of that example in, in, the, in agriculture, right? I'm in the middle of Iowa and surrounded by cornfields and continue to be amazed at, at how closely packed together uh, these corn plants are. And it doesn't matter if we have a drought or we have too much rain, these plants just grow and they proliferate and the yields just keep uh, uh, going up. And so a lot of that has to do with, with biotechnology, our ability to, to manipulate genes and move them in and out of, of these corn plants. So corn doesn't even look much like it did even uh, you know, when we were, when we were uh, younger. Uh, so yeah, it, I can remember. I can remember when corn did not look as pretty as it does. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my wife dreams. and I, <laughs> my wife and I, not long ago, got some corn at the uh, the farmers market, and so you know, shucked corn, and we put up corn, and I just yeah. was amazed how pristine it all was. Because as a boy growing up on a farm in Missouri, to see a one corn cob that was actually look like it should was unusual right and now yep. it's the norm right so you're saying that is by that's that's not an accident that's due to the biotechnical work that you you and others have done exactly and in and, and mo most of my work is is in microbiology microorganisms and microbiology but uh, as we'll talk about here in just a second the the basic building blocks the basic tools discovered and and characterized in bacteria have been applied to corn and soybeans and also then uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about now is is how does that apply to human human medicine which where i think some more of the interesting ethical uh questions uh, uh come from so let's talk about the, the application to, to human medicine so we know there are up to ten thousand diseases now associated with genetic events in other words mutations or changes in the dna sequence of our bodies that, that have a bad outcome, an important protein is no longer made or it's not made in the right way. And so these pose a real problem for, for cure because they don't respond to drugs or vaccines. Uh, uh, they're a fundamental part of, of, our, uh, of our genome, right? The collection of all the genes that we, uh, uh, that we have referred to as a genome, and we can refer to that basically like like a book. It's a book of our uh, blueprint. Our, our books are similar. Our, the text is similar in, in a lot of ways be, uh, between us, and then there are some sections that are uh, that are very different. So, so right, Ken, when you're you're writing a book, you uh, you may make a typo. Well, you can you can edit that typo. You can fix that with with the uh, uh, the text editor functions of a uh, of a word processor. So we can think of basically gene editing as the same approach to actually going in and changing DNA sequence, which gives information about, about us, about who we are, and uh, a gene that's, that's not correct, that's causing problems, that can be fixed just by, uh, by editing. And the analogy I, th I thought of here is, 
in, in one of your books, if you wrote the term, um, God is not the author of sin, which is, uh, uh, applies to, to Molinism, I, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, and you forgot the word not. Well, you've changed completely the whole meaning of, of that, not only that sentence, but, but basically of, of the Got premise. Got a theological problem with the sentence. Exactly, right. Well, you, you fixed that, right? You could just add not back in and we're, we're back. We can trust you again and, and read the rest of, your, uh, uh, rest of your book. So there's been a lot of effort in biotechnology and biomedicine to come up with ways to do gene editing, to actually change the sequence of our genes to fix genes that, that aren't properly functioning. In fact, this has been going on for a while. The 2007 Nobel Prize was given to a group of researchers who really pioneered this idea of, of gene editing. editing. But the whole process has been difficult and, and very uh, challenging to do. And this is where this idea of CRISPR uh, comes in. CRISPR. So tell, yeah, tell us about CRISPR. How did it arrive and what is it? So as my wife says, she, she likes, that's how she likes her bacon, right? CRISPR. But, but it, the, the term CRISPR, of course, is an acronym. And it stands for, are you ready for this? Uh, clustered, regularly, interspaced, short palindromic repeats. So that's why we say CRISPR, right? CRISPR is a good idea, yeah. So what does that even, what does that even mean? So that term has historical relevance and, and it doesn't really give a functional definition. So it's not like the term scuba or radar that tells us a little something about the technology. The term CRISPR really is just referring to how that information looks uh, in the, the genome. So interestingly, CRISPR technology is started from in bacteria. It's found only in bacteria. So here you have this, this genetic system, this cell functioning system in, in single cells. It's now being applied and having big implications and application to human medicine, to plant biotechnology and, and, and all of that. So it's a little bit of a plug there for doing basic research, understanding how life works at its basic level. Not everything can be predicted uh, by, by going after solutions to problems. We just need to understand a little bit about how the nuts and bolts are, are put together, and that can lead us to some new uh, insights as well. Anyway, that's so, Yeah, so if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, what you're saying is, is that gene editing and gene therapy is something that's been around for a while. What CRISPR is, is a new way to do, and maybe I take it it's, it's easier, cheaper. Exactly. Quicker. Easier access. Exactly. So let me give you a, a quick analogy of how, how this CRISPR uh, system works. So back to our analogy of, of our genome being a book. Well, you can read the book of a bacteria bacterial genome uh, as well. So let's say you're reading a book and the author puts a song in the book. You know, for some reason, they want to put this song to give you information. Well, that's different kinds of information. You're reading text. You come across this other section here. Maybe it's indented and it's a song. Well, that song has a, has a refrain or a chorus, let's say, and that chorus is repeated over and over. Well, we understand what that means, but, but a similar kind of of DNA sequence information is embedded in the genomes of a lot of bacteria. So you'll be reading the DNA sequence along and, and using you know, your skills to know, understand what that DNA sequence is doing. And you'll 
come across this different type of information with these repeats all through it. And so that led earlier investigators to say, well, this must be different types of information. It must be telling us something different uh, about what this group of, um, of genes or, or DNA is doing. But nobody knew what that was for, for, a, uh, for a long time. So it turns out that bacteria are more clever than we, we think. So you and I and higher organisms, we have an immune system, right? So we, we fight off infection through antibodies. And if we've been exposed to infection previously, then we can respond to a subsequent infection. That's why we need a vaccine for, for COVID-19, right? We can, mm -hmm. we can trick our immune system to thinking we've seen the virus before. And then if we encounter it, we're going to hopefully be protected against it. So bacteria do the same thing. They do it in a little different way. They use CRISPR to detect infection from a virus. So believe it or not, viruses actually get infected with, with uh, I mean, bacteria get infected with viruses just like we do. COVID-19, the virus that causes that disease, infects humans and some other animals. It doesn't infect bacteria, but they've got their own problems. They've got their own viruses that infect them. So there, there's always this war going on all through nature of something trying to infect something else, and it goes all the way down to the, to the level of the bacteria. So bacteria have developed CRISPR as a way of fighting off bacterial uh, infection. And they do that by, by um, recognizing a piece of DNA, or it could be RNA, but usually it's DNA. And when these viruses infect the bacteria, they inject their, their uh, DNA into the cell. And bacteria use CRISPR to basically uh, make a memory or recording of that of that infection event. So all subsequent generations of that bacterial cell that was infected now are immune to uh, further infection because they use CRISPR to destroy the DNA that's being injected by the, the bacterial virus. So in a lot of ways, it's analogous to our own uh, immune system. And that, that explains these repeats because uh, the, the DNA in these bacteria, it's referred to as a CRISPR array. And, and all the memory, from previous infections is, is recorded as these little repeat, uh, as part of these repeat sequences in the, in the genome. So you think about how this DNA cutting works. Uh, bacteria gets infected with a virus, the DNA is injected, and now it uses some other elements of the CRISPR system to basically say, this piece of DNA does not belong here, it can cause me harm, and cut the DNA. Well, what is that really doing? That's it's basically gene editing, right? It's editing out, it's destroying a gene that's being introduced to the bacteria. So some pretty clever researchers realized, why not just take the whole system that we find in bacteria, they studied the basic components of how it all works, and if, if it could cut DNA from a, a virus, it should be able to cut DNA and edit DNA from any source, and indeed it can. So you could take these CRISPR elements and deliver them to different types of cells, plant cells, frog cells, human cells, and it will find DNA that you targeted and it will cut the DNA and you can fix genes that way, just like your cut and paste editing does in your word processor. So this is a remarkable tool that has now been developed. 
in the field of, of genetics and microbiology. Right. And one can see uh, the good things that you just got to say. There, there's what I think, you know, thousands of, of, of diseases that are uh, genetic. I mean, they think of cystic fibrosis or exactly. Hodgkin's disease. Exactly. Um, the, the list goes on. And, and yes. in fact, I guess most cancers should be understood as a, a disease of, of the DNA or the cell. That's correct. Meaning so that's true. Th this, this has really wonderful, positive promise. What would be some of the ethical concerns? So, so for me, the, the, uh, the question is, when is this applied? So there are clinical trials going on now for, for um, uh, sickle cell disease, for example, mm -hmm. where basically, right, this is a disease that, that could be very devastating to individuals because they don't make the right hemoglobin. And it's one gene, it's actually just one base pair change with, within a gene, very little bit of information, but because that protein is so influential, the hemoglobin, uh, that it can have profound impact on the uh, health of the host. So what, what can be done is you, you, can, you can harvest your, the progenitors, the, the stem cells that give rise to all your red blood cells. You can use CRISPR to fix that gene, repair it, edit it, make it normal, or as we say, wild type, and then reintroduce those cells to the patient. And so subsequently, all of the red blood cells produced for the rest of that person's life will have the normal hemoglobin. So that, that's, a, that's a way of curing a disease where you, you can't do that with a drug or a, or, or a vaccine or anything like that. Yeah, that's exciting. That's okay, right. But, but then what if you're applying this to an embryo, fertilized egg? So you think of the, remember your biology that, that all of the cells that result from that fertilized egg, that embryo, will inherit at least one copy of your edited uh, gene. And then that edited gene also becomes a part of your, your, your germline, right? So that individual goes on and has children. And now we're talking also, about change, now we're talking about changing the human race. Exactly. And and you know, there's a term called term called a gene pool, the, the collection of all the genes within humanity that that sorted out. So here's a here's an artificially modified gene that's been introduced into the human gene pool that one we have no absolute understanding of how that could affect other processes, right? We, the human genome is extremely complex, you know, tens of thousands of genes interacting in ways that we are just beginning to understand. So there's this idea of unintended consequences. What is the implications of, of setting on a new generation, subsequent generations where that modification has not been done uh, naturally? It could have had good intentions to start with. So that's one, one concern, unintended consequences. Secondly, is this interesting ethical question of consent, right? So you, you are imposing a, a, a procedure or a change to an individual in a, genera in a subsequent generation who's never consented to that particular change uh, uh, having occurred. So I think that you know, there's some ethical uh, considerations there. And then probably even bigger is the idea of of, is this used only for a disease cure? Well, it's a slippery slope and there's gray area there between cure and enhancement. We, I can think of a lot of things, you know, I like to be smarter or, or faster or whatever. As we know more about genes, uh, what would prevent us from editing 
at the very early stage genes for improvement or enhancement. And I think that's a very different ethical consideration, a very different use than to be than to cure a gene. And as I said, that there, there are gray areas there. It's not a complete dividing line between enhancing uh, a person's function uh, or abilities rather and um, and to cure a disease and then who has access to that type of technology i think most people get uh the concerns about actually affecting the human race through the germline and the idea that someone's you know okay three generations four generations down wait a minute i didn't ask for this you did this without right. my my that's a very good point right the the third one is the one that I expect to become a very big problem very soon, especially, I mean, we've already had situations, I think there was in China where right. one researcher got into a great deal of trouble in which he uh, ge genetically edited the uh, fluorescent twins, if I remember right. That's correct. They edited at the embryo level and implanted those embryos and they became full-term uh, human beings. Yeah. Yeah, and so the so the the law of unintended consequences become Murphy's law is something that that science knows a lot about, and and then also the idea of enhancement. It's one thing, like you said, to to deal with obvious detrimental disease like sickle cell anemia uh, or something of that nature, where you say, okay, this is obviously a good. But right. what if, what happens then whenever we're saying, this is a way to make sure that my son is over six foot tall? Right, right. Or, or and, and here's where it gets a little more vague. Uh, what if we're able to say, okay, make sure that this child is not autistic? Uh, you know, we, right. we're now we're starting to affect, there's just, there's just so many things here. I am excited that you are in the field that you are because we need Christian voices in every arena, and I cannot imagine uh, an arena that needs the, the Christian voice more clearly than in the field of bioethics as it relates to uh, genetics. Right. Um, so, so before we get done here, we're just about done, um, I do want to ask you, what, what advice would you give a young man or young woman who are who is wanting to get into to the STEM field? They're they're young Christians. They're believers. They're they're excited about science and technology, like you are. What would be what would be a word, what would be a word of advice you'd give to them? Yeah, absolutely. Good good point, uh, uh, Ken. And my words of advice would would be go for it. I think absolutely, as you've well stated, uh, it's an important area uh, for for Christian influence, uh, but it's also an area ripe with opportunities. I tell all my students now that the, the life sciences, the biological sciences are being more uh, influenced and combined with things like computer science, with engineering. Uh, uh, there, there are just opportunities that, that I couldn't even dream about as, as, a, uh, as a younger student uh, that will continue to be available, I, I believe, for careers and opportunities in, in, the, uh, in the future. And as you stated, uh, always, obviously the need to, to, to have a Christian influence, to continue to, to have the, the gospel preached to subsequent uh, generations. And, and I think a lot of it's just perseverance. I've studied with some really smart people. I don't consider myself at, at the level of any of those people, but perseverance can help. You, you have to slog through some 
classes in chemistry and physics and math that lay the foundation for other uh, uh, topics. I'm sure you've had some of those uh, courses as as well. And persevering, and, and uh, I think is a lot a lot of it. Not not giving up so easily when something gets hard. We've been listening to Dr. Greg Phillips, a microbiologist at Iowa State University, and I'm Ken Keithley, wishing you a good day.